This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 25, recorded on March 19th, 2020. listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah and I'm here with Drs. Fawner and Keller. How are we doing today? It's a pretty busy day today. I have three classes and I mean I have a lot of stuff to get to in terms of lecture prep. How about you? He's a funny guy, isn't he? I know. I'm feeling good. <laughs> we, we don't have any students here right now. Oh, well nobody told me. Uh-huh. That's the difference when I walked into the lecture hall. No <laughs> students. In all, in all seriousness, we're quite busy doing everything That's true. all along. No, no. I was jesting. Um, yeah. Uh, turning, so it turns out, as uh, most academics and uh, institutions of higher learning in the U.S. are discovering, uh, taking your curriculum uh, to online. All online. All online without any uh, warning or prep time uh, turns out actually. Uh, A bit of work. Is a lot of work. <laughs> I'd say a bit of work, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I feel I feel for some of these students uh, in some colleges, obviously not here, but in some colleges where, uh, you know, professors uh, still use uh, transparencies and overhead projectors. Yeah. And now they're told to go online. It's a tough right? transition. That would be a yeah. big transition. Yeah. I mean, some of these guys uh, can barely function email. Well, some of these classes are hands-on. Like art. Yeah. yeah. We were talking about that art the other online. Day. How do you sculpt? Online. I think courses in the humanities are going to be taking a big hit. Um, I mean, numerous courses, curricula, different programs. But the one question that I hope we can have answered, everybody's thinking about COVID, but I'm wondering, where's Cam Newton end up in free agency? Dr. Keller, your thoughts? That's a very good question. Something to ponder. It is something to ponder. Is this, is this All sport, I know is that Sportalese? Who's Cam Newton? Yes, it is Sportalese. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty uh, sure you had Cam Newton in your fantasy football team. You picked Cam Newton. Yes, but you, got it. Yes, you picked it for him. I'm just glad to see the Steelers got two of the three Watts. I know. I'll take the one Watts more. Brothers. Three I Watts. Like it. Three I Watts like and it. you win. I think that's going to be And my, I hear uh, Boston is uh, a, a bit of a shock this week. Yes. Well, uh, Dr. Scully, if he's still listening, he's probably still a little, uh, maybe a little bit irritated by Under the that. weather. <laughs> yeah, he's a big Brady fan. I guess big now he'll be a big yeah. uh, Tampa Bay fan, though. Yes. So, uh, okay. in, in addition to all these uh, uh, professors having a struggle to switch things online, one thing that is uh, coming out of this uh, sort of closures of schools uh, almost nationwide that we don't normally necessarily think about is that a lot of kids uh, depend on schools for food yeah right and that's uh, that's a problem Mm -hmm. right and uh, a lot of people depend on their employer for health care and a lot of employers don't offer health care right so that's right 
And this is a health uh, crisis. So we are learning a lot in addition to the virus and the pandemic about how our society is structured. True, but I think we're also learning a lot about how people step up when needed. That's true. I mean, That's true. Some communities our, have our, our public schools here offer yeah. you know, two, at least two meals a day mm-hmm. to anybody. Right. Even when well, the students. schools are students. closed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can and, still go get your meal. And you know, different companies too, you had told me, right, about the U-Haul thing for yeah. the displaced college students, right. free month of storage. Yeah. And again, not to get too much into the celebrity realm, but was it Ryan Reynolds and his wife? Didn't they pledge a million dollars for a food shortage or something like that? I'm pretty sure. Uh, speaking of celebrities, there's a bit of a uh, outcry about how some NBA teams have been able to test their entire member, everybody on the roster, yeah. and some people who are sick with symptoms can get a test. And that's that's also something we could talk about in terms of testing availability. Inequality when it comes to treat us. Uh, Testing. Yes. Yeah. If you didn't know what we were talking about, don't be surprised that it's still the coronavirus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so our uh, episode, it is, you know, I know Dr. Keller and I had a discussion about, oh, should we talk about the coronavirus again? And I was like, I can't think of anything else at the moment, right? Like my entire every day, I'm occupied with reading papers on Corona and reading Corona news. In addition I, to switching to online curriculum, I'm on a completely <laughs> different page because everybody's get talking about coronavirus. Let's get, get it, it away. Let's get it done with. I mean, not that it's not important to keep updated, and that, that's right. But uh, you know, I feel like the last part of the trilogy hopefully is always the best and then let's get it over with but Godfather Part 3 well we'll see if this is a I was going to say there's discrepancies there Return of the Jedi Terminator 3 Terminator 3 yeah middle maybe and then Godfather Part 3 just fell apart so Lord of the Rings 3 was pretty good Uh, that'll be our next episode trilogies so March 19th who is today's birthday Oh, I guess that's my cue. That's your cue. (laughs) Okay. Um, Mario Jose Molina Pascal Henriquez. That was well done. Thank Mm -hmm. you very much. Um, A Mexican chemist known for his pivotal role in the discovery of the Antarctic ozone hole. Um, What, he was the co-recipient of the 1995 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his role in determining the threat to the Earth's ozone layer of chlorofluorocarbon gases, otherwise better known as CFCs. And he shared that prize with fellow chemists Sherwood Rowland and Paul Crutzen or Crutzen. Apologize for the... Uh, uh, I don't think Paul was listening. No, probably not. <laughs> if you are Paul, I apologize. But um, yeah, they did research in the 70s concerning the decomposition of the ozonosphere, which shields the Earth from dangerous solar radiation. Yeah, and uh, uh, their discovery led to uh, effectively a ban or at least reduction on the use of CFCs in a lot of uh, manufacturing. He's also the first Mexican-born citizen to ever receive a Nobel Prize in chemistry. It's pretty awesome. Go, Mario. That is awesome. That's right. So, clarifications. Any clarifications today? I guess the only clarification is that um, you know, things have definitely changed and progressed at a more than considerable pace since yeah. definitely our first episode in mid-January, but even from last episode, um, both the response to the outbreak that we've been covering, but then also the number of cases and the spread of this thing in multiple countries, I think has progressed to a point maybe not a lot of people predicted. I believe we did. 
So when, when we first recorded our first episode, there were barely a few cases in the United States. They were under uh, under 20, under 30 or so. True, but we predicted that it would continue going up. We did. I, we did. We're still not at the tip of the iceberg no, yet. No, no, no. We are way, way weeks away. I'm, I'm hoping you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, so do I. I'm hoping I'm wrong you know, as well. I hope but we hit I, that, that peak sooner. But, but as you see in China, the peak occurred. It has. If you believe their it numbers. The if you numbers believe the down. numbers. And yeah. uh, according to the Chinese uh, reporting agencies, as of yesterday, they had no new cases in Wuhan. Okay. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Right? If, yeah. if believed. True. But I mean, and, and at this point, I tend to believe them. I'm with you. I'm Even with you. I, if they're underestimating the numbers, you would, you would think they're underestimating Well, they're under the a microscope, too. Sure. Yeah, exactly. At, at this point, I'm, I tend to believe them, right? Yeah. Because this has become a global problem. Sure. Uh, but where are the numbers uh, in the U.S. and the world? And uh, right now, it is March 19th, 2.26 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, these numbers are... Um, Accurate as of 1.55 p.m. We looked so these up. half an hour ago. Yeah. Yeah. So in the world, we have 236 and uh, 703 cases with uh, close to 9,800 deaths with a case fatality rate of about 4% currently. Uh, of those cases, uh, it's believed that about 7,179 are in critical conditions. That means they are in the hospital with respirators. And uh, that's a percent of about 3%. Uh, China is still uh, steady at about 80,000 cases. Italy, since we last spoke, uh, right now they are 41,000 cases, 3,500 deaths. And their CFR is oh, very much increased, 8.3%. Uh, 8.3% death rate. 6% uh, or so of those cases are in critical care. Uh, Iran, also high numbers. Uh, I tend to disbelieve some of the Iranian numbers. I think they're higher than what they are. Right now, they're at about 18,500 or so. I think those numbers are underreported. Mm -hmm. uh, we have no idea how many of their cases are in critical care or in hospitals. Uh, that, that data is not available. Uh, Spain and Germany have ballooned as well in terms of number. Really interesting, however, and you know, I want us to talk a little bit about that in, in a second. Uh, Germany's death rate is really low. Uh, so far, they have 14,544 cases, only 43 deaths with a death rate of 0.3%. Who are they calling cases? That's what I want to know. Confirmed, diagnosed with the PCR. So, so PCR, okay. PCR not confirmation. Symptoms. Not symptoms. This is, this is all confirmed by PCR. So who are they testing then? Are they testing everybody? Because we're not. Yeah, we're, we're not testing point. everybody. Yeah. yeah, we in the United States are not testing every citizen, uh, uh, even asymptomatic citizens. So I wonder if that may right. sure. be why the discrepancy. Because you would could be. I mean, you could say genetics, but between Italy and 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 Spain and Germany, I mean, that's a big difference for Germany. But yeah. those death rates are not of total tested. It's of those tested positive. Yeah, I understand. Mm -hmm. But but yeah. do those still include people that had the common cold symptoms? But, but th th then, then that would be a co-infection. This is this is the death rate of those that have COVID nineteen, definite COVID nineteen. Sure, and yeah. a lot of people still don't get pneumonia. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Like the severe so I'm saying, issues. Yes. We're not we're not testing everybody here no, in this not. country. So I would say that could be a discrepancy. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the United States, the numbers uh, as of today are eleven thousand three hundred forty-eight with one hundred and sixty-seven deaths, and a case fatality rate of one point four seven percent. Which is uh, low. Lower than most other places. Lower yeah, than most other saying. places. And uh, a critical care, 64 so far, with a critical percent of 0.56. But I'm still interested in those German numbers. They only have, uh, according have to this lowest, data source, right? they only have two people in critical care. So, you know, it could also be resources available. Now, on, on a number, they have more cases than we do and a much lower mortality rate. But what about the UK? Who has twenty almost twenty seven hundred cases as uh-huh. here, but a hundred thirty seven deaths or five percent, right? Yeah. much higher than ours. Why much higher than ours? If they have a lot lower number of cases, I'm sure they have resources, meaning hospitals, ventilators available as yeah. much as we so do. A but lot we'll, of questions. But we'll here. talk yeah. about the UK response when we get to herd immunity. Sure. Originally, their original thought was to just let it go rampant. In the non in the non critical right. category, and we'll talk about that when we get to that. But yeah, I think they, they just had a different response than we did. Well, even the Netherlands at twenty five hundred cases still has a, a, a double. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it could be lifestyle as well, right? I Maybe. mean, uh, a lot of these countries have different comorbidities. Sure, sure. But yeah, we'll talk about that. So um, yeah, interesting numbers there. We just wanted to give you an update on the number. So uh, the way we did this episode is we uh, solicited questions from uh, our listeners uh, through various uh, sources, email. Some and some of you emailed us. We got quite a number of, yeah, of, of yeah. questions, oh, yes, so we, we appreciate it. And Thank uh, you for listening and, and sending in those questions. Absolutely. Some of you uh, responded to Twitter or Facebook posts. Uh, I know some of my friends sent me questions through WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. But uh, the most common question that we get is... Uh, uh, why is this different than the flu? And I think what we should, what we ought to do here, uh, and you guys tell me if you like the strategy. Uh, we'll just have uh, go in rotation, have uh, each one of us uh, answer a question. How about that? Sure. All right. Uh, who wants to start with the flu? You want me to do this one? I'll take it. All right. Have at it. So, uh, why is this different than the flu? So I think is a lot it of fair the- to compare it to the flu? A lot of comparisons out there are saying, "Oh, this is just a flu, or it's just a nasty flu case." Why, I think why, the why best is that response wrong? to this? Well, first of all, just based on the scientific background and knowledge of this, comparing influenza to a coronavirus, the coronavirus is not the flu, right? Um, in terms of what it's currently doing, um, right now at this moment in time, it's with the data that we have available. Um, the flu death rate is approximately, what, 0.1%. And the current estimates for um, COVID-19 for the CFR is about 3 to 4%. And that is as of right now. We don't have a very a year-long sampling of data to compare you know, flu yearly death rate to COVID-19. We won't have that, obviously, for another few months. But as of right now with, the, with these data... Um, COVID-19 is about 30 to 40 times more deadly, okay? If you believe the case fatality rate of 3 to 4%. Yes. Right? But I think all of us are in agreement that that is going to be much, much lower than that. Yeah. Probably around 1% or so. But even with 1%, it's 10 times as deadly. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously other key differences, and we won't have a vaccine developed for um, COVID-19, likely for what? 
maybe the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. I don't know what the process is right now of them speeding things up or the timeline. Probably six months. Six months. I mean, it has to. It has to. It has to go through. Well, there's already one. I don't know where it's at Mm -hmm. right now, but I know it started. Phase one. Are they in phase three already? So no, no, I mean, there's there's three. There are three, but yeah, I know one of them was already through phase one. That's correct. Okay. And about to either start phase two or three, but there's still there's still a lot of work to do. We don't want to throw something out there that's going to make everybody sick. Yeah. Right. And, then, you know, I, those are good precautions, and they have to take their time with this. And then once they get something approved, then they have to manufacture it on a wide scale and then distribute it, which is going to take some time. Right. Right now, we have a vaccine for influenza that's going to help with mitigating some of these infections, right? Um, vaccine is not perfect, as we know, but it helps to mitigate. We don't have a vaccine right now for COVID. There are drugs available for influenza that also help with symptom alleviation. So far, there aren't any approved medications for the COVID infection. Um, The flu or not is what, about 1.3, and COVID-19 is between 2 to 3, and that's pretty important. And just a quick reminder, or not is effectively the number of people an infected person is expected to transmit the disease to. So if you have an R0 of uh, three, then every person who has it is expected to transmit it to three other people. So the fact that it is two... Would that be a good summary? Yeah, I agree. So the fact that COVID-19, it's estimated R0 is two to three compared to the flus, which is 1.3, it has a higher likelihood of transmitting from one person to others. That is correct. Um, These were data that were taken from the CDC Approximately 1% of patients infected with the flu get symptoms that are severe enough to be hospitalized. With COVID-19, Chinese data indicate that approximately 14% of cases were severe and approximately 5% were considered to be critical. And both of those cases required hospitalization. Again, greater discrepancy in the uh, data and those percentages. So right now, in the current state of things, as we record this podcast, COVID-19 is more serious and considered to be more serious than the flu. Even though total numbers are much, much dramatically less. Yes. Flu season infects, what, 60, 70 million people in the U.S. alone every year. Yeah. We're not even close to that with COVID-19, right? Yeah. Total numbers uh, are much, much less with COVID, but percentages uh, seem to be much higher. And I think another thing that is scarier, especially at this time of year, that maybe we can touch on later, is the fact that we're dealing with three three conditions around this time of the year that creates uncertainty in terms of symptoms that people may experience. COVID-19 now, uh, influenza, and then allergy season, right? And I don't know about you two, if you suffer from allergies or get any allergy symptoms, I usually, within about a month, I'll start sniffling, maybe get some post-nasal drip, um, but... That must be the cocaine. Well, I'm glad you... <laughs> Dear Lord. <laughs> that that goes. Goes. I'm kidding, that listeners. Huge, I'm kidding. Huge, huge leap. <laughs> so, a little bit of, uh, of science and maybe some of my own thoughts, but... You know, the the whys of this. So sure enough, I will agree that right now coronavirus is more deadly than the flu. But we don't have the data in. and I'd, I'd like to leave that open for the future because there may be a lot of coronavirus cases that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. We'll find out that maybe maybe the R-sub-naught's higher, but that means the mortality rates and severe cases are going to be much 
lower. But this is something new, and I think that's why the response, why the scary, why we're all social distancing is shutting down, is because it's something new. So nobody has ever seen this before, that's which right. means the entire global population is at risk. Mm -hmm. That's different than the flu. Even with, uh, I think we had another drift this past year. I know at least last year we documented a drift. A drift for the flu is when it changes a little bit. That's why we have an annual flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. The flu changes. It's always going to do that. We're never going to be able to stop that. Mm -hmm. So we try to mitigate that with the annual flu vaccine. But that means that there's a good number of people that are completely immune to the strains of flu that are floating around. Mm -hmm. So that lowers the number of people that could be counted as cases. They're yep. just immune. And so here you have a new virus in in, in uh, COVID-2, mm -hmm. right, that – can that's gonna affect everybody. Mm -hmm. Nobody's not gonna get infected. Yeah. Nobody has antibodies. So I think just the fact that we have more people being able to transmit it is why, of course, we're worried and we're social distanced. But I think what we're gonna find is since everybody got it, mm -hmm. our numbers are way off. That's my opinion. Hopefully it'll be a Long fact term. later. Long term. Yeah. We're gonna so, have to wait and see. Yeah. Because right now is not the time to figure out if hey, if you're not sick, did you get it? Right. right. Now's the time to worry about those people sure. that we need to protect. The That's elderly right. mainly. And I, I understand and, and trust me, I respect that opinion. I of course respect everybody in this room. Um, mm -hmm. what I'm concerned about and the biggest thing that causes me to worry is the fact that some people are not taking this seriously whatsoever. Um I'm not going to put an age to that or say why, but some people are not taking this seriously or not rec doing the basic social distancing, other recommendations to help to mitigate the transmission and uh, the, the possible concern of this. I mean, you see on the news at beaches down in Florida, you're still seeing thousands of people on spring break milling about and why, why is it always florida man it, it's every every news story is florida but i mean it's happening nationwide so it's only florida <laughs> it's, it's happening nationwide. Florida. if you don't know <laughs> one place on dr delbert is from florida <laughs> <laughs> i guess it, it just that's where i think more concern and you know a little bit of panic is okay full-blown sensationalistic panic hysteria that's not going to do anything but I feel like some people, like maybe the people partying on beaches and say this is not a concern whatsoever, I think if everybody took this a little bit seriously, we'd be better off. That's just my opinion. And, and we would control the spread a little bit faster. And we're going to talk about flattening the curve, reducing transmission, etc. But I mean, I think we all need to do our part, right? Uh, we're uh, socially distanced in this office recording this right now, right? We, we've got adequate distance between each other. And um, speaking of Florida, you know, I had a flight to Florida today, which which I canceled. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Right? Uh, I was I actually hadn't told my family I was going to surprise my nephew for his birthday. And Happy birthday. Uh, happy birthday, Sam. Yeah, yeah, happy birthday, know. Sam. And yeah, I was, uh, was going to surprise my nephew, uh, Sammy, for his birthday. And uh, that just is not going to happen. Sorry, sis. And, uh, you know, Broward County in Florida has a big, big uh, community transmission right now. And yeah. uh, they're starting to mobilize the uh, National Guard there to set up field hospitals and field testing. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. But so what's the current state to kind of leapfrog, leapfrog off of that? Uh, what are current seclusion measures that are occurring in the U.S. and worldwide? 
So uh, we live in Pennsylvania, right? So right now, Pennsylvania schools are closed uh, pretty much uh, for uh, two weeks. This We are in the first week of the two-week order from the governor. And uh, non-essential businesses have also been given an order to close. That does not include grocery stores, pharmacies, and gas, gas stations. stations. Yep. Bars and restaurants are closed. Uh, restaurants are only open for takeout. Or delivery. Or delivery. Which or still... Social distance when you do that, right? Leave uh, it on the front step. Yes, leave it on the front step and yeah. run away. It's totally okay to ask the <laughs> delivery person to do yeah. that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's probably what they're currently being asked. That's maybe what they're being told. Well, to well they need to be safe and, too. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they keep this country running. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have been given a strong recommendation from the uh, state government and the federal government to stay home, but has not been mandated yet. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get there. We'll see. But we'll see. Uh, we here at LECOM have uh, sent our students home and have moved our instruction to online. This is uh, to protect the students and to protect the LECOM community, and I think that was a wise decision. I agree. Uh, staff and faculty, obviously, uh, we're still coming in to keep things running. Uh, for now, uh, we're not necessarily uh, you know, at, at risk. Every, most of us know that social distance, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we all have individual offices we uh, get holed up in. Uh, some counties within the state of Pennsylvania, however, have more drastic measures in place. Uh, Montgomery County, where Philadelphia's is, right, mm-hmm. uh, has much, much more drastic measures because they have a bigger outbreak. Uh, San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So That's some other states have different measures. Some cities have yep. shelter-in-place orders. Uh, San Francisco has a shelter-in-place order. That means not leaving your house except for food or medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh some places, like I said earlier, have started mobilizing the National Guard for field hospital assistance with pandemic relief. Uh, hopefully, we don't get to a point of uh, delivery of food supplies. I, I think the supply chain for that kind of stuff is strong in this country. I'm, I'm not personally not worried about the food supply. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, it's, it's, it, there is no evidence that it's an ingested virus. I know that there's a study out there saying they, they've had some contaminated feces with it, but it doesn't matter. That's not how we get yeah. it. So no, no, no. the only reason I'd be concerned about getting a box from Amazon is if, if it hadn't been clean. But yeah. but I mean But but that's only if the if the driver just recently sneezed say, on, yeah, on yeah. it or I something mean, like that. The yeah. the studies that I saw Plastic, plastic yeah. is a couple days on plastic, but not on cardboard. Not on cardboard. Yeah. It's going to get sucked into that cardboard. Yeah. And, and, and who knows what that delivery, what they're going through in terms of their screening protocols. Sure. I mean, Amazon truck drivers. Yeah, but but if, right. if you're worried, you could always, you know, open it with gloves. I yeah, mean, they're sure. available. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but again, wash your hands. and yeah. Yeah. It, Wash your hands afterwards before you yeah. touch your face. Mm-hmm. Simple. So uh, lockdowns and why they're useful. Who wants to? Uh, Keller? Sure. Sure. So... I mean, lockdowns, it's very easy. You're not having contact with anybody who's sick. Mm-hmm. And if you are sick, you're only having contact with those people that probably already got it from you. So yeah. a complete lockdown, that's going to really take us one step further and probably make it a longer time to recovery, honestly, at least um, financially. But that's my opinion. But it will flatten the curve. The, the, the curve really is, is the number of cases. We want to try to minimize the number of cases uh, by minimizing the number of people that get uh, contract the disease. And that's what it's going to do. So if I'm sick and I'm at home and I'm not allowed to go anywhere, 
then the virus is going to die out in me and I'll be no longer infectious. So why is flattening the curve important? Well, it, it, it stretches uh, out the cases over time, right? So so effectively not o- overwhelming our health system, right? Well, I mean, that's that's one part to it. But I, I not only will it stretch the cases out, but it will reduce the number of cases, period. Right. Because yeah. if I'm sick and I was going to give it to you two guys, if I'm locked down, you're not getting it. So it's not right. only flattening curve, it's lessening the curve. Right. So it's two things. But um, in terms of overwhelming the healthcare system, absolutely. I mean, we only have so many ventilators, so many beds, so many doctors, so many nurses. And, and we know, need to protect those as well. Well, we need to protect them as well. But we're even talking about do we have the facilities available if everybody in Erie got sick right now and need hospitalized? Yeah. Well, that in, in any infectious disease outbreak, that number is going to depend on the are not and the mortality, the severity, I shouldn't say yeah. mortality, but right. what we were looking at earlier, the critical. So it's it, it, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you, you lock people down and I'm not able to go to work, I could lose my job. But at the yeah. same point, I'm not able to transmit this disease to somebody else because it's respiratory and short-lived. Yeah. So I guess it's, it's also a case of, I mean, right now there's some uncertainty. How long could this last, right? Uh, maybe weeks? maybe months. I know the president said he is, is he planning for it or is he suspecting that it goes until the summer? Did he say something where July or August we that could still be said. dealing I with think this? Recent, Potentially. That's what they're getting Pre- out of the CDC. And recent yeah. models yeah. predict a peak in June of so, cases. So and that's, and again, hopefully fl- that's not the case. I'm, I'm hoping the it's a but I am too. In terms of flattening the curve, we deal with it now. We take the negative impact, let's say, in the next two to three weeks if we went on lockdown today or tomorrow. I think we're already there with a negative impact. Like it, yeah. it can get any worse for the... I mean, I guess it can get worse for the market. It can get worse. Yeah. By far. Yeah. 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 I mean, but it's causing earthquakes in Utah. <laughs> I saw, yeah. But hopefully, thankfully, not hopefully, thankfully, there wasn't much uh, damage to life there. Uh, no, my brother my brother lives there. He, oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he let me know. The trumpet yeah. fell out of the a Mormon statue, and that's all he, he told me. So. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's all good. I know. So sorry about your statue. Um, I guess what I'm considering, too, is in terms of resources and resor- possible resource depletion, given that, you know, healthcare institutions maybe don't max out but get pretty busy dealing with influenza. Oh, they will max now out. Now we are also getting into COVID. So, yeah. uh, Fawner, do you want to take the next two questions? They go hand in hand. Sure. So another question or these sets of questions have to do with managing uh, the risk of exposure for those who are being told to still come to work every day. So this is similar to what you know we've been told and our um, standard operating procedures, avoid large gatherings or meetings as much as we possibly can, um, utilize telecommunication or conference calling. Uh, if you are, this is probably the number one, right? And this goes for everybody. If you are sick or symptomatic or are even unsure, is this allergies or the sniffles or the flu, uh, you need to stay home. Um, disinfect your workspaces regularly obviously hand wash more regularly, practice proper respiratory etiquette, don't shake hands, sneeze into your arm and elbow, um, providing adequate trash receptacles for the wipes and any tissues that you might be using, um, telecommunication for meetings, use that instead of in-person meetings. Uh, this is more, and this is a shout out to my brother-in-law Joe for you know asking some questions here. 
um, for construction sites or anything that requires tools, um, discourage the use of other workers' equipment slash devices, and avoid touching, you know, your hands, face, or, or I'm sorry, avoid touching your hands to your face or your mouth. Perfect. Okay. Uh, another question that came out is, uh, genetic, is there a genetic component to the disease? Uh, this was the result of a sort of reports showing that uh, maybe more younger people are being infected or with critical severe cases in Europe or in the U.S. Uh, so is there a genetic component to the disease? Um, I personally don't think so, and I don't see why that would be the case. The only paper I found that sort of addresses that is looking at ACE receptors. So as we know, the coronavirus uses an ACE receptor to infect cells. And uh, a paper which is still in preprint, so I would caution that it is not peer-reviewed yet, uh, titled uh, Asians and Other Races Express Similar Levels of and Share the Same Genetic Polymorphism of the SARS-CoV-2 Cell Entry Receptor, the ACE Receptor. And again, for all of these uh, 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 studies, we have links in the show notes. Uh, they showed no difference in age, sex, or race in terms of expression of the ACE receptor. Interestingly, and I thought this was this was interesting, it showed that the ex this uh, same study showed that the expression of the receptor increases with age, which might explain why the it's elderly have more severe yeah. cases. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, again, speculation. Well, there's no report out there. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and see. There definitely will be some genetic protection from this because there is for every infectious disease. Right. Now, will that be based on race? Probably not. Mm -hmm. It's based on your individual responses. Yeah. yeah. Um, because what it comes down to is the severity of this disease depends on your immune response right. and how rapid it is and, and how much fluid comes in your lungs. And that's what's causing the severity. And so if you have too robust immune response, that can be as bad as if you don't. Yeah. But typically right now we're seeing that those individuals who can mount an immune response are typically surviving better than yeah, those that can. Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, so this study showed no difference in ACE receptor expression, for example, in sex, but uh, based on the Chinese numbers, we know that uh, males are more likely to uh, die yeah. than females, right? So uh, different factors are involved. Again, what we wanted to do, we can speculate a lot with a lot of these, right? Mm -hmm. But what we wanted to do is give you answers based on data we found in the literature. We did yes. not want to speculate on a lot, a lot sure. of those questions. Yeah. 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 Sure. But I'm going to speculate a little bit. I mean, I, th I think oh, it's yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, I, think I agree. There's a podcast. No, 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 yeah. Everybody's at risk. Opinion. Everybody is at risk. Yeah, there, is nobody who's not at risk. I think it's more your response to the disease, yes. not your protection from Expression it. of symptoms, underlying I think so. health conditions, things like but that. But yes. again, that is my speculation. Of course, I did a lot of my PhD work on cytokines. So well, there you go. We'll just throw that out there. That helps All right, with the immunologist so, here. That's right. <laughs> Ibuprofen. So treatment. Use it, don't yeah. use it. So my wife and I were having this conversation just uh, yesterday um, you know, very recent reports out of Europe, and now our government says no, don't use ibuprofen for kids, um, and or or anybody. And ibuprofen, we don't know why. Um, there's some speculation that um, it may upregulate those the receptors we were just talking about, um, allowing the virus to replicate more, so you get more virus quicker. Mm -hmm. So it's like a bigger dose, if you will, uh, but. Uh, ibuprofen used to shut down the fever. There's other alternatives you can use. That's right. Like 
paracetamol, sure. Advil, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so as of now, we are telling you don't use ibuprofen if you have a fever. Yeah, be safe. And you sus- well, and you you suspect it's COVID nineteen. Yeah. Right. Uh, clearly, you can still use it for other things. Yeah. So, uh, it, I mean, again, it's all based on speculation out of uh, reports in, the, in in France in French hospitals, and that's what our government is also saying. Yep. But uh, so far, it's a correlation. We don't know if the data will pan right. out after know. this this thing is over. But it's better to be safe than sorry. And and keep in mind, we're giving ibuprofen to shut down. The immune response, mm-hmm. really, to right. shut down your febrile response, which is based yeah. on these little molecules called cytokines. But mm-hmm. without getting too scientific, this is what regulates your temperature set point. So we're giving your drugs to say, let's shut it down. Exactly. Hypothalamus but, lecture. I wish uh, I could have given it. <laughs> not right now. <laughs> but it not Try only again. does it shut, out, shut down those cytokines, but it shuts down the same ones that can activate your immune response, yeah. as we said. Yeah. It looks like people that don't have as robust immune response, people over 80 are yeah. dying. So. so there's other drugs that are better um, or at least show some promise. Let's say that. So far, um, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I was just looking this up. So – I'll take it if you don't mind. Go for it. Have at it. Um, there were a, a couple that worked and a couple that didn't work. Actually, let me start with the one that didn't work. Um, it was a uh, an HIV drug, two HIV drugs that were given in a combined pill. These were uh, this data came out of China and they were really excited at first. Um, this was back really, I think, more in February, but um, it was Kaletra which um, is a cocktail of two HIV drugs, two protease inhibitors, but it didn't have any effect whatsoever. So that's out. Two drugs right now that are being looked at um, and one more promising the other. Let's do the first. Remdesivir, which is a drug that inhibits the uh, enzyme that this virus uses to replicate. In other words, it uses it to make new RNA. It's an RNA virus, so it has to make new RNA. Was this the one that originally developed for Ebola? It was. This one was originally developed uh, for Ebola, and uh, it didn't show that much promise. Fortunately, there weren't a lot of Ebola cases they tested against. But, yeah, right. uh, but it showed promise in experiments with uh, SARS, the original SARS strain from mm-hmm. uh, the early 2000s, and the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which were both caused by, other by similar coronaviruses. So uh, they thought that would work. Um, there's a lot of information out there. These are still in clinical trials, but uh, there's some information that's kind of come out that, uh, that about ser- severe side effects like um, rectal bleeding, which uh, I'm say severe. Yes. Oh, I'd really? Say, you know, I, I, oh. Thank you to know for that. So yeah. what's coming out now, and I found an early online paper from France, is a study that uh, examined hydroxychloroquine. Uh, chloroquine's an anti-malarial drug, and unfortunately it doesn't work against malaria very much or as much as we'd like because of resistance by that pathogen. But it could have a... It could potentially not help only, out with the patients well, here, right? Not only could it, but it's interesting because we still want to give that anti-inflammatory response to kind of shut yeah. down the immune response a little bit, not completely like ibuprofen's doing. But help to mitigate it, well, right? Well, that's what chloroquine's used for nowadays. Mm-hmm. We give high-dose chloroquine therapy to patients with rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. which is an inflammatory disease. And so they don't know why, but they found that chloroquine um, really sh- shut down 
viral replication leading to uh, less virus in the nose. And that's really how we're measuring infectivity. How long is it detectable? And they found that uh, that it shortened it to six days hmm. in patients given um, chloroquine. It was a small study. That's nice. But it's a start. As opposed to those that don't receive any therapy, it can be up to 20 days. Mm-hmm. And well, interestingly enough, they also found if they added an antibiotic, which was really for more bacterial infections, um, azithromycin, which a lot of us are probably familiar with, it shortened it to three days in some people. Mm-hmm. So it within three days, there was no more virus being made. Cool. So this this gives us some hope because yeah. yeah because not to take away whoever's doing vaccines, but I think this thing will be done before a vaccine's developed and available. Hopefully, I, I think a treatment would be much better right now. I agree with you. I think I, agree. Treatment, I think yeah. I think a treatment with what we need right now. Well, is we need a, more ammunition in general, just to help with hopefully alleviating. Some well, and, and I'll tell you, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine uh-huh. is cheap. Yeah. You can make boatloads of this stuff pretty quickly. It's out there. And if it know, really does work, this would be a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, uh, China's almost done fighting this thing, and uh, all these things are made in China. Yeah, good point. Right. And, you know, thank, you know thankfully now we're going to see China hopefully come back online with production of all the stuff that the rest of the world needs. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, could, we could manufacture chloroquine right here at home. We can. If we need to. We can. Uh, so, uh, vaccine antibody from Sierra, that was a question uh, that someone had uh, sent us. Um, well, the short of it is none have been developed and approved yet. And as we said at the beginning of the episode, this is likely going to take a while. Uh, Dr. Fossey said about a year to a year and a half. Uh, what, Fauci early? is the director of the NIAID. Yeah. And early estimates call for, what, maybe by the end of 2020, if... Things are if we're rushed a bit and if we're lucky. Um, but there are a few vaccines that are currently in development and that are undergoing uh, testing. Um, let's see. Uh, Moderna Inc. in Massachusetts began phase one human testing of its mRNA-1273 at the... Uh, this is the Seattle study. Uh, yeah, in the Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle. So right now the test involves... 45 healthy adults aged 18 to 55, and those phase one trials are going to continue over the next six weeks. Perfect. And uh, there's a couple other vaccine uh, uh, potentials, right? One from Inovio, one from Regeneron. Yeah. Do we... Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Well, I guess I'll... I thought that was your lead-in. Yeah, the the antibody from Sarah would be, you know, much... Probably quicker. Faster, That's what Regeneron is hoping. So yeah. a lot of, and you know, this this was done with Ebola uh, before, yes, where they used people right. who had recovered from Ebola. You isolate can take their, their blood, isolate antibodies they have against the virus, and sort of inject that into patients currently fighting the disease to help them out. And uh, there's promise in that because those antibodies do work against those viruses. You could do the same thing with this coronavirus outbreak. Uh, now, what some companies are trying to do is. Um, take those antibodies and sort of reverse engineer them to produce them in a lab, which you could do right. easily. You know, you can sequence up 
antibodies a protein, yes. you can sequence a protein and then start producing it, right? And that's uh, mainly to block viral entry into the cells. Absolutely. Right? So hopefully you would produce neutralizing antibodies that that's can block we're hoping exactly for. that can block viral entry into cells, and then uh, you will have no infection. And it would that's be right. kind of a bimodal uh, precaution. There or a way to fight this on two fronts: you either inject this into patients ahead of time as a precaution, or inject them into patients who are sick and speed right. up the recovery process. Right. Now, uh, with serum injections, uh, you sometimes run the risk of hypersensitivities. We're not going to get into that, but there are some complications to that, which we're not going to get into. No, no. But there's complications with everything we've talked yeah, about. Side so effects, far today. complications. <laughs> yeah. Retinitis with chloroquine. I mean, yes. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, are there two viruses going around? No. Yeah. Thank no. you for that. That's, That's a quick answer. <laughs> this is easy. No, there's not. And no, this this virus virus wasn't made in a lab to kill everybody. It, no, yeah, that's it, insane. It, it, it's following the same pattern as SARS and MERS. It's just that those viruses were not readily transmitted between people like this is. Yeah, yeah. That's the only difference right. is that we're actually seeing community transmission, not point source from the animals that were originally involved. So another question we had, if you have symptoms, should you even bother to get tested? Or should you presume that you have it and monitor symptoms and stay at home? When do you seek medical help? So if you're at home and you believe you're experiencing symptoms that are similar to COVID-19, um, you can call a healthcare provider, call your doctor. Of course, if you're suffering from a high fever and have severe shortness of breath, you should call 911. Um, once you're on the phone with your health provider, they're gonna, you'll answer their questions and determine your risk of COVID exposure, probably a screening process, right? So you'll be asked, have you had contact with sick individuals? Have you been traveling recently? Whatever screening protocol your healthcare provider will enact. Based on the provider's instructions, you'll either be told to stay home and monitor symptoms or come in to get tested. And of course, these regulations could vary depending on the location and your specific doctor or healthcare provider. Right. So another question we got is, standing in line at the hospital to get tested puts you at a higher risk of exposure to the virus? Uh, the answer to that is, well, it depends on if there's someone infected in line at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is, yes, if someone has it and is actively shedding, coughing, then you can get it. However... If you do not have any symptoms, there's no need for you to go get a test. Why are you getting tested anyway, right? Um, all right, other questions. Seasonality of the virus. Do we think this will become seasonal in the U.S.? I do. I do. Like the common cold and the flu. I do. Here's why. Um, because this can be transmitted between people. I think not everybody's going to get it right away. You know, I, I keep saying a lot of us will. Um, you know, I, back to, the, like, why get a test if you're not sick? Well, I might have it and be able to spread it. People will be carriers for a while. It'll probably mutate, but it's not going to be as severe. It'll become another virus. The reason I say that, and, and, and again, we don't know. Numbers aren't out there yet. Yeah. This is a maybe. Mm -hmm. But compare it to SARS and MERS. There's two viruses that burnt themselves out. Right. They were able, you can still detect it in animals, but yet we don't see outbreaks with those two specific viruses. In humans. Because there wasn't a lot of human-to-human -human transmission. Now that we're seeing that there's a lot with this virus, I'm assuming it'll just become another common cold after this uh, with maybe once in a while a severe case. So we better get cracking on that vaccine. I don't think you're ever going to need a vaccine to it. <laughs> I think, we'll I think it'll, yeah, I think, we'll I think what it'll become is just another circulating strain of, of coronavirus. 
And yeah, that's the hope. I think a lot of people hear of that word mutation, especially as it's thrown around in the public, and they immediately start getting afraid because, you know, well, that's that science fiction to you, right? Yeah, there you go. Mutations. So can it mutate to become deadlier? Um, mutations are a natural part of the virus life cycle, as we've gone over, and they have been shown to rarely impact or dramatically impact outbreaks. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've already talked about how most of these mutations can negatively affect the virus. Um, if mutations aren't beneficial, they're typically eliminated through natural selection, evolution, and all of that stuff. Um, other mutations survive and get embedded into the average genome of the virus. The average genome. There you go, yeah. the average genome. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. This is absolutely, it can mutate. Is it going to? Probably not. No. Probably not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the doomsday virus. Yeah, we this don't want to be. This, guys, this is not the doomsday virus. Yeah, we don't want to be alarmists. Yeah. We want to protect uh, our citizens. Exactly. We want to te- we want to protect the people that are susceptible, mm-hmm. but it's not a doomsday virus. Uh, uh, yeah, again, the short answer, can it mutate? Sure. Will it to become deadly? Yeah. And what's that movie? A very unlikely. Outbreak? <laughs> outbreak. Or oh, contagion? Contagion, yeah. Uh, we're not there, guys. No, no. We're not there. I think uh, in Outbreak, it took a few weeks for a mutation to occur, and they were then <laughs> dealing with a much more viral and deadly strain. That's right. That's, uh, that's a good movie, but very much exaggerated. So a uh, question that we got, what percentage of people have it or had it in the past and are asymptomatic, then what is the true mortality rate as a result? So uh, current estimates for asymptomatic transmission is anywhere between 15 to 20%. Uh, this comes from two studies, both that came out this week, a few days ago. A uh, study out in the uh, journal Eurosurveillance test uh, titled Estimating the Asymptomatic Proportion of Coronavirus Disease 2019 Cases on Board the Diamond Princess Cruise Ship. So these guys, effectively, uh, pretty much everybody on that cruise ship got tested. Sure. And some showed no symptoms even 30 days after. And uh, those are asymptomatic cases. And the estimation from that study was 17.9%. Another study published also recently in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases Uh, looked at Japanese citizens that the country of Japan uh, extradited, or not extradited, I guess, uh, uh, removed from, what's the word I'm looking for? Extricated? Expelled? Uh, They weren't expelled. They got them from Wuhan, effectively. Oh. uh, Not extradited. Extricated? Sure, extricated. Uh, Not exported. (laughs) What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, because I'm stumped, too. We'll Uh, just use extradited and come up with a better word later. Airlifted? Sure. Well, should airlifted out of Wuhan, Evacuated? Right? Evacuated, sure, yeah, we'll okay. go with evacuated. Uh, well, <laughs> well, anyway, in, <laughs> in those Japanese citizens, the uh, estimates for asymptomatic rate is as high as 30%. So uh, roughly, I think 15 20% is a good average on that. You know, I, we don't, the answer is we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, we We're going to come up with it. Right. Um, I'm glad these papers are coming out, though, because they, they do shed some light. We need that light shed. Right. Right. But, I mean, come on, they're using this, this first paper, that, that's... Basically, it's we're, we're saying social distancing. Everybody get away from each other, and yet they're going to tell us how many people get sick from people on a cruise, mm-hmm. which is social shortening, I guess, because you're crammed in this place. Okay. I think you're more infectious to your fellow shipmate on sure. a cruise. Oh, sure, for sure, yeah. Sure. And remember, the, the, but, but people, it does give you a good number of those that ha- tested positive sure. but had no yeah. symptoms. Sure, sure, and I, I I like that. But yeah. at the same point, you're getting probably more virus. 
probably and imagine, imagine a few years from now when we will do maybe a coronavirus retrospective episode oh, when they've be done a, a study a massive study where they will see what the true numbers are, the oh, true they will. mortality rate. They will. I mean, that's going to be a fascinating collection. Of if you want to get into research, for our listeners, if you want to get into research and you, you don't know what you want to study, now's the time to think about coronavirus because there's going to be a lot of funding for this in the next few years. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the people are going to be looking at the true mortality rate, which mm-hmm. was the second part of that question, and we will not know that till after this whole thing is over. We're doing serology studies on uh, a good representative population and looking at antibodies and whether they ever absolutely have or not. Yeah. And or, to, yeah. to those of our colleagues out there that have studied coronaviruses and we said that's nice thank god you were there yeah. because now yeah. we have somebody who's a specialist absolutely. but this is how science works folks so yeah. so will warm weather slow this down I mean, short answer is unknown at this time. It could, uh, it could make a dent and decrease the transmission, but it's at this point unfair to assume that it's going to behave like others. We can speculate, but we can't say for certain that it will slow down and be less of an issue by what yeah. June, July. We don't, we I don't, don't think we can say anything. We don't, we don't have the no, we, we don't have the data. Yet. We're in the middle of this, but yeah. I mean, if if history says anything, then yes, because every other respiratory virus in the summer pretty much goes away. Now again, nobody has immunity, so time, though, yeah. yeah, so it could keep going. But I, I, we practice more social distancing in the summer than we can even try to do right now, right. at least up north. Yeah. But even with uh, flu and the cold that have seasonality, there are still plenty of cases in, in warm, warm, summer, uh, warm summer months, right? Yeah. So, uh, next question. How long do symptoms last once infected? When are people contagious? And how long after symptoms abate are you no longer contagious? So, the data we found on this one comes from a German study that we'll put the uh, link to in the show notes. Uh, this shows that people shed virus particles before and after they show symptoms. Most individuals were contagious before they had symptoms in the first week of the disease. In this particular study, they could detect virus up to day eight after onset of symptoms. So presumably, sometime after that, you are no longer contagious. That's based on the current collection of data. Right, right. right. More is needed, obviously, as we move forward. Uh, next question. So, do most infected patients have a low-grade fever, or is there a high-grade? Is the high-grade fever more common? Uh, some reports have shown sixty percent of patients are asymptomatic. Are they truly asymptomatic, or do they present with some of the symptoms? Um, asymptomatic spread has been documented, right? There has been a paper in Science describing this asymptomatic spread pattern. Um, they were studying infections in the early stages of the outbreak around January, and they estimated that almost 86% of all infections were in people with mild or no symptoms at all. Now, it, it's, it's important to remind people of that, right? Some, something around 80 to 85% of cases are mild or not symptomatic. This, yeah. is, this, this, this does not downgrade the severity of this outbreak, right? We want people to take this seriously because yes. 15% of millions of people is a lot still that we yes. have to hospitalize, right? Yes. But just keep in mind, uh, for the majority of people, this is not going to be, uh, I need a respirator infection. And that's what we've been trying to get across to but also to asy- everybody. And, but also asymptomatic yeah. spread and transmission is 
factor that could make it harder to control in Absolutely. the U.S. and in other countries, yeah. right? Now, what about the symptoms? So studies show that fever presents in 90% of cases. Um, cough occurs in approximately 60 to 80% of cases, and that usually accompanies the fever, and it's described as being a dry cough. About 40% experience fatigue, and other less common issues have been uh, GI symptoms, some patients have even reported vomiting, diarrhea, and some abdominal pain, although those are symptoms that are extremely less common. So what about that uh, New England Journal of Medicine paper that compared SARS-CoV-2 to SARS-CoV-1, right? So how's the virus spread? Why is it so contagious? And how long does it stay on surfaces or in the air? Even? So this was a really good paper to come out to. So it's paper. really important. Um, look, we know it's a respiratory virus. If somebody sneezes on your face, you can get it. That's why we're doing social distancing. Social distancing should help more with the respiratory droplets than the fomites. Again, a fomite is any inanimate object, like a doorknob that could be contaminated. And so uh, we know that fomites can be involved as well. And so this paper out of the New England Journal of Medicine looked at a few different types of substances that we come into contact every day, like um, plastic, stainless steel, cardboard, copper, and, and aerosols. Looked to see how long the virus was viable and able to be detected. And um, what I found interesting is that plastic was the highest. Um, and, and then stainless steel was close behind, but it was about two to three days. Now, remember, this virus... Uh, that's think, a long period. That's a long period of time. Um, the, this is an enveloped virus, and, and what the envelope does is it allows the virus... Uh, a, it's not a protection, but it has proteins in it that allow the virus to find the new cell it wants to infect. Yeah. And if the virus dries out or gets heated up, in this case, dry out... Mm -hmm those proteins won't work anymore. Yeah. And so if we keep it dry, that's great. Plastic has little pockets to allow... can almost the, hide. Yeah, right? to almost hide. Yeah. Two to three days is long. Cardboard was much... I can't remember what it was, but cardboard was much lower. Did we get those numbers? Not on here. Uh, I didn't put them in there. I just put uh, what was yeah, that, uh, significant. So that, that really stood out to me. Uh, copper's been known to kill pathogens for a long time. Yeah. itself. So that was that was interesting. But the, the plastic to me is what stood out. So that's a, a good thing to keep in mind. If you got your Clorox wipes at home, target those stainless steel and, yeah. and plastic newspapers. And I, I we did a, a study here looking at magazines and to see how if we put some bacteria on them, how many could we get up? Mm -hmm. And those they just suck up those bugs. And you're not able absorbed, to get the back. Yeah. They absorb yeah. them. Yeah. Um, same with with sneezing on it. They absorb those things. So papers and cardboard tend to be more absorbent and less transmissible for this virus. Okay. Uh, again, the link to those studies are in the uh, show notes. Yes. Interesting, uh, sort of circling back a little bit to the uh, German study, they found that patients with SARS-CoV-2, which is the current virus for COVID-19, uh, have a thousand times higher viral numbers than what was observed with SARS-CoV-1 when they did uh, pharyngeal swabs, nasopharyngeal swabs, mm -hmm. which is possibly explaining why this is uh, much much contagious. Yeah, yeah I wonder. I wonder contagious. if. So I wonder if asymptomatic. We'll find out someday. But I wonder if yeah. asymptomatic people would have less. That they might. Yeah. You know, sure. And so they're yeah. they're less. So because we're worried about these people carrying it, and being infectious, but maybe they're less infectious. Yeah. Because that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of virus. These people. So another question we got: If I get it 
Once, can I get infected again? And the answer to that question is probably not. Most experts so far say that it is highly unlikely that you will get infected again after recovering the first time from the coronavirus. A study recently published on the BioArchive shows that rhesus macaque monkeys were immune to reinfection. This will most likely be the case in humans as well. Also, think about it. If humans were not immune, we would have probably seen a resurgence in cases. Oh, absolutely. Time, right? uh, keep in mind, we don't know how long this immunity is for. Is it going to be for six months, for a year, or for your entire lifetime? We have no idea, and uh, we're just going to have to wait to find out. But the quick answer to that is... If you get it once, you're probably going to have neutralizing antibodies for a short would, period of time. Uh, I'd be least. surprised if you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So, uh, Fawner, maybe you can address the next question. Is it true that a lot more younger cases and even deaths than expected are being observed in the U.S.? So this is something where it's changed since we did our first episode, um, where there are now data that show that younger patients are... Um, being affected a bit more than we originally thought and that I would imagine a lot of experts originally thought. Uh, the disease still has the highest mortality rate among elderly populations. However, hospitalizations are high and increasing among younger people. And this week's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report that was issued by the CDC showed that approximately 20% of hospitalized cases and 12% of ICU cases were between the ages of 20 to 44 years old. But we're oh, still oh. seeing deaths uh, being highest among the greater than 60 yeah. years old group. And I think the CDC is actually worried about this, that they released this report a few days early. Uh, usually they get released uh, not midweek, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they were so concerned about this that uh, they said, hey, listen, we need to start paying attention to this, that a good number of hospitalized cases are between the ages of 20 and 44. Yeah. But it's not affecting the fact that the elderly are still most susceptible to die from we're, this. We're most concerned with the older than 85 group. But Definitely. You know, the older you are, yes, the more precautions that should be taken. Yes, and especially older with a few or numerous underlying health conditions. Oh, absolutely. You want to be careful and practice safe preventative measures. Okay, so uh, someone asked us, what is causing deaths in more, most patients? And it turns out that in this SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19, uh, they've seen reports that the virus penetrates deeper into tissues, into lung tissue. Most deaths are due to respiratory failure and multi-organ failure. As the virus uh, replicates inside of your cells, destroying those cells, it's going to create a lot of cellular debris, a lot of cellular parts, and then your immune system is going to come in, try to fight the virus, and clean up some of that uh, dead and dying cells, and you will end up effectively uh, having a lot of fluid build up in the lungs and uh, airways being blocked. And all of these invading immune cells trying to both control the virus and clean up all these dead and dying cells leads to what's referred to uh, in immunology as a cytokine storm. So your immune system uh, secretes all these cytokines to try to combat or orchestrate an infection. And if you have a lot of these, uh, you're going to have effectively an immune response that goes out of control. And if that is the case, that usually leads to organ damage because immune cells not only attack foreign things, if left unchecked, they can also start attacking your own cells. Yep. And that's what effectively they're seeing to uh, in these cases, what's leading to a lot of this lung damage 
and uh, organ failure. So it's not that the virus is working new. It's that the virus is able to get to a different part of the body. So keep in mind, what, what is the most common symptom of the common cold? That's a question for you guys. Oh, or, or, or those at home. <laughs> well, yeah, runny nose. Runny nose. Uh, yeah. Because you know, you're vasodilating, you're bringing in cells, like you said, you're bringing in immune cells mm-hmm. in the nose. Mm-hmm. So think about all that fluid and think about all the drainage you got. Now imagine having that in the lungs and you're not able to cough it out. That's what's yeah. happening to these older patients. Plus, so, cytokine storm just sounds cool, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, cytokine storms do sound yeah. cool. But they are so yeah. bad. They, they can be. All right, what are the risks to healthcare workers? So the CDC has uh, changed its recommendation for PPE, personal protection equipment. And uh, I think part of that stems from the fact that uh, we realize maybe we don't have the ones we think we need, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, healthcare workers, uh, who wants to take this one? I mean, uh, this is in addition to the overwhelming burden of the onuses, right, that's likely stressing the health system. But they are seeing, especially over in China, that um, more than 3,000 healthcare workers um, have become infected, and at least 22 of those have died. And there are concerns that the healthcare workers could be spreading the virus to family members, and some reports even suggesting the transmission is occurring with these asymptomatic healthcare workers. PPE is definitely the best defense, right? But um, other concerns include surfaces that become contaminated. And I mean, the best precautions that could be taken is to, by healthcare workers is to ensure routine droplet barrier precautions, of course, adequate environmental hygiene, um, sound infection prevention practices. And this is something that has actually been reported by Erie News Now is that with the case in Erie County, um, proper precautions were not enacted. And apparently, and this is citing the Erie News Now information that was just released about an hour ago, um, the medical personnel who helped with treating this individual um, likely were exposed or during the handling of the testing, they were exposed to COVID and that the precautions that were supposed to be provided to the individual who tested positive, um, there was no quarantine. The, the individual went about their daily routine and didn't really change things. And uh, that's a what I consider to be a pretty severe failure of what should have happened with, you know, one of the first documented cases up here. Yeah, so uh, in addition to that, uh, didn't you tell me earlier that the uh, ED News Now is also reporting that that person was not given proper self-quarantine uh, instructions and they just went about their business out in the community? I did say that about 30 seconds ago. Yes, uh, just to reiterate. Um, <laughs> he did. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're um, our, I'm, our, I'm, our focus is razor sharp today. I'm, I'm, we, I'm trying to are, stay ahead on the questions. Yeah, you know, no, I'm no, reading no, the next this question. This outbreak is so bad. I think <laughs> I'll be up Everybody's phone. on edge. The outbreak is definitely uh, <laughs> affecting us. Um, but no, I think that healthcare workers, and I'm not passing judgment here, I think they're dealing with a tremendous responsibility, a tremendous outcry, resources are being maxed out. Um, failures like this are probably more common than we realize. And I mean, the best advice is um, healthcare workers need to realize that they are at an incredibly elevated risk of exposure and they need to act accordingly, be on your toes, minimize burnout as much as possible, 
I mean, what else can you say to these healthcare workers who are on the front line? Uh, not just that. I mean, there's also been uh, different agencies uh, with directives, right? CDC, NIH, NIAID, state health departments, county health departments, right? Uh, we need to all get on the same page somehow. And I don't know how you're going to enact this either, but some type of time off for the healthcare workers um, to yeah. minimize burnout if their families yeah. or loved ones become ill, time to take care of them at home. I don't know how you manage that. Hopefully with flattening the curve, uh, we can minimize the impact on healthcare workers. Yeah. But um, my thoughts and my heart goes out to them because they are the ones who are being the most impacted minus individuals who are falling ill. So uh, another thing that uh, someone asked about is herd immunity and uh, UK, the United Kingdom had a, uh, an idea of uh, trying to induce herd immunity as much as possible with active infection and thankfully they've backed off from that. Oh, I just want to see how that one worked out. Uh, so there's there's a lot of talk about herd immunity, right? So in the absence of a vaccine, uh, the only way to get herd immunity is through natural infection, right? However, uh, the safest way to get herd immunity is through a vaccine. And uh, because natural infection, uh, although can achieve herd immunity, uh, you risk disease spread, especially to the most medically vulnerable in society. So... Uh, in the absence of a vaccine and in the absence of social distancing, we expect this virus to spread dramatically, causing disease and uh, killing people. Uh, so even if you, let's, let's say you want to enact that. Let's say you want, you want to say, you know what, the best approach is herd immunity. Let's get everybody infected as fast let's as possible, right. right? Let's say you want to do that. And uh, with, with so many people then becoming immune to it, the spread would stop, which all of that is true. Except that uh, there's a high risk to the elderly. Obviously, you'd rather vaccinate them than give them the infection, right? And uh, even in those so-called less risky groups, right, the younger who, whose case fatality rates are lower, there is still a, a uh, risk of death, right? Uh, so in the 10 to 39-year-old population, there's a 0.2% risk. In the 40 to 49-year-old po population, 0.4% risk. In the 50 to 59, 1.3, right? So uh, that is just the death rate. The risk of hospitalization as well, as well is much higher, and healthcare systems will not be able to keep up. That's the risky policy with herd immunization. With So you train more people to help. So if you're... Now immune, now you can care for people who are sick. Do, do you, you think do it, it would be it's like a chicken pox party? Do, do you think it would great. be wise to take all the healthcare workers, right? Not at one time, but in, Not a one, in, groups. in batches and get them all sort of like the disease, watch them carefully, and then they're immune and uh, they can go out there, uh, help fight this disease. It's again, no, I was thinking non healthcare workers. And use them as healthcare workers after they're immune, like the cholera outbreaks used to do. So you're saying I mean, after this thing is is out there and, and who, whoever has gotten it and is immune should be asked to volunteer to help out? Maybe not everybody, but I'm sure you'll get a lot of volunteers. Th that's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah. Well, thank you. 
I'm glad you approve. <laughs> I yeah, know, I know, but, we're over time a lot, but I was no, about, yeah, we were, we're expecting this episode to run longer than one yes, hour. Yes, I hope, I hope we still have listeners when we're done with this one. But, <laughs> I think, but we should just skip are, ahead to the. I think the, people are fascinated we, by our discussion. We could always say I know, stuff for I know coronavirus Delbert is. No, there's only three questions left. I think so. We're not. We're not. Yeah, with, with the vaccines and the idea, I just want to say that you know the vaccines they're working on, as far as I was reading, are the different formulas, but are not going to be the live virus. Right. Yeah. And that's a big deal. So a lot of the new va- vaccines that we're having, like HPV and the new um, shingles vaccine, these are all uh, not viruses. They're they're made in the lab and they work pretty well. At least the HPV and the the uh, shingles vaccine. Mm-hmm. Historically, a lot of vaccines that we gave to people were were live, weakened yeah. viruses, and so there's always a chance with those types of vaccines that people could actually get the disease yeah. from the vaccine. So it wasn't heard of from somebody to get yes. polio from the live polio vaccine, mm-hmm. and so that's just something to consider. That um, that uh, what Doctor Delver said was you're not going to uh, the best the best way to get. Um, herd immunity here is by the vaccine. vaccine. That's not historically true, but it's definitely true with these new formulations. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, uh, how about some? Uh, should we should we leave the economic discussion until so. some other time? I think so. What do we so. think? Sure. Okay. How how about the? We'll, we'll address one more thing before we go to our uh, ga- game segment. And I've been raring to go for that. How about the? I think, in my opinion, this has showed not only the world, well, not only the U.S., but the world as well, that we're not truly ready for a pandemic. I think there's always a way to get better in terms of the response, but... Right. Um, I, I feel like I we scrambled yeah. a lot. We, we I think it could have been 10 times worse. I, I, I see it from it a could different... could have also been 10 times better. I don't think so. <laughs> You're not going to ever contain an infectious disease completely. Sure. You know, and... and you know, the number of cases that were coming out of Wuhan, or the number of infected people coming out of China before the Chinese even let us know something was going on. Those right. people were infectious. Sure. This was bound to continue, and that, that's what we predicted. That's but, but that's what I'm saying. Are, are, are we, should, at the end of this, should we as a world community come together and say four diseases at the very least, maybe we should be transparent? I well, think certain countries are going to be unable to do this unless they have the money. Right. I mean, uh, well, so, building the capacity to do this for a faster response, for better systems to track disease progression, confirming diagnoses because of strong lab networks, which is something that you can say the U.S. wasn't prepared for and still isn't well, really the, adequately. The, the CDC testing was part. Yeah. never no, designed no. to be a high throughput organization. And maybe they collect data from other people. So, you know, so one, you have to have a test place. that works. You need to but that's what I'm verify saying. that it do, works. Do, then do you we, can have other people make do it. Do we need to change how we do business in this country? At least I don't know how pertain you can to that. pandemics, right? I mean, creation versus mass production are two different things. Yeah. The mass producers are not designed for the, the R&D, really. Right? That's two different branches of one organization. I, I don't know. I think this would be... We, we need to liaise better, perhaps. I think so far that the world has stepped up to this one. I believe that. I, if you're if you're thinking about the the cruise ship and whatnot, sure, individual decisions can be. Questioned. Oh yeah, yeah. There were so and many wrong decisions taken as far but, as those things. But are to me, that's yeah. a that's a, a a minor point. I mean, here we're coming together trying to get people to social distance. It's working in New York City, or at least starting to. Yeah. All right, maybe not the beaches. It's too warm down there. I guess I don't know. It, 
those those younger generation aren't listening because they're not the ones being affected. They're not seeing everybody. They think that they're not being affected. They think, yeah, right. they think that right. They think that they're not. And being if they're affected. asymptomatic, then these are they all opinions. Could be allowing for the disease. To I know when I was their age, I was invincible and nothing was going to get me. <laughs> You're still invincible. Oh, I thank you, sir. Right. So I mean, I, I think part. I mean. As far as diseases are concerned, I think we need to be a little bit more transparent as countries. I would have loved, for example, for China to have asked help for help in January or yeah, but, in December. But they're not going to. Right? I, I don't know. I you know I just I hear what you're saying. That would be great, and that that may be one point that can be fixed. But all of these outbreaks have been different. They all have, the like, bugs but, are different. Yeah, but I mean, even like with testing in the United States, I mean. I would have loved for the U.S. to have accepted the World Health Organization testing kits when they offered them before we fumbled our response. Back now we're on track, right? We're on track to produce good kits and send them out there. But our original response was terrible, right? And there were countries out there with kits that we could have borrowed from, but we decided not to. You know, I'm just saying, in, in light of how bad this could have been and how many people that could have died, Yeah, I think we're doing an excellent job. Well, hopefully, hopefully. I, I think we're on the right track now, honestly, in the U.S. Um, is it late? Was it late by a couple of weeks? Will that matter? We will never know till later, till all of this is over. Um, but hopefully we've answered most of your questions. Uh, if you have any more, please email us and uh, we'll either address them in a new episode or we'll just uh, respond back to you. We can, we can always do that. And uh, without further ado... Uh, Dr. Keller has been on the edge of his seat, ready for the game segment. It's the only reason they have me here, you know that. <laughs> okay, so let's switch gears and be uh, a little bit happier, I guess. So we had oh, we're some, happy. Oh, we're happy. We uh, we had some uh, a lot of good uh, answers. I'm gonna we'll just read a couple of them to you, but um, let's go through the uh, last episode's uh, guess that microbe. So. Uh, originally discovered as a cause of fever, anemia, and even death of cattle in Romania, this human pathogen can cause fever and flu-like symptoms right, and even lethal disease. Today, different species of this pathogen live in several areas of the U.S., including the Northeast U.S. And So today's questions are, what is the genus and species name of the pathogen, and what are two ways it can be transmitted to humans? And are we, this week's winner... Uh, is Vince Bauer. Thank you, Vince, for listening. I really appreciate that. Uh, Vince is somebody I went to high school with, so he knows probably how uh, scientific I could be. So the answer is Babesia microti. Babesia is, is a very interesting parasite. It infects red blood cells similar to malaria. And um, while it's not typically as lethal as malaria, it can cause anemia and respiratory distress, particularly in those that are older. This uh, parasite is transmitted by the same tick that transmits Lyme disease, the, the black-legged or, or commonly known as the deer tick. Um, so most commonly, it's transmitted via the tick. From uh, The tick transmits it between animals out in the, the wild, little mammals, and uh, can transmit it to humans. That's the most common. But because it's not screened for in the blood supply, and after all, it infects red blood cells, there have been documented transfusion-related cases. While you know, doing my due diligence research, too, and, uh, and Vince correctly says that there have been documented cases of 
uh, mother-to-child transmission. And so recent uh, one one recent article I could find suggests that this may be a transplacental organism rarely, and so it can cross the placenta. And uh, some animal studies in, in mice and rats have shown that, yes, indeed, this can cross the placenta, and that's why they think it's maintained in the wilderness. So great job, Vince. Uh, to get your prize, which is a happy stuffed Babesia, <laughs> Um, giant microbe, you can contact Dr. Delbert at thebiobusters at gmail.com and uh, we'll make sure you get your prize. Vince, please send me your full name and your address and we'll send it in the mail. Yes. I assume you live in the U.S. If you don't live in the U.S., we would need a I phone number, international I believe Vince lives post in the U.S. Be, okay. In the U.S. <laughs> We're not just... going to say on air where <laughs> Vince lives. Right. Uh, just, just your full name and address and we will send you your gift in the mail. Yeah, so good job, everyone. Um, another correct answer was from, from once again, Jen. And Jen wrote that, um, that uh, hi, I don't need another prize. Well, thank you, Jen. Uh, but here's my submission, which was correct, Babesia uh, by Crotty in the northeast U.S. There are other species, as she's noted, bovis in cows and, and Babesia divergens, which is a rare disease in Europe. And is transmitted by ticks and by transfusions. So, okay. Very good. You have a new riddle for so us. So I have a new riddle, this little shorter one, but hopefully we'll, uh, our listeners will be sending in uh, correct answers. We're going back to food poisoning for this week, Cast the Microbe. So while rarely lethal, this pathogen is a major cause of food poisoning intoxications, resulting in vomiting shortly after ingestion perhaps diarrhea later during the course of disease. There are only a handful of reports of deaths attributed to this pathogen, including one person who ate spaghetti, which he had left on the kitchen counter for several days. <laughs> Another case involved a child who died after eating bad pasta salad. Today's question is, what pathogen was involved in these cases, and how is it able to survive the high temperatures in the cooking the pasta? If you think you know the answer, please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Okay, any, any other thoughts from anyone before we wrap this up? That's it. I think I'm out of thoughts. Okay. Well, uh, you can, uh, that's our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Please send us suggestions for topics or uh, more questions you'd like us to answer. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, just search for The BioBusters. Uh, you can use any podcast catcher to listen to our episodes. And uh, I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah. You can find me at Twitter at Dr. Delbert. You can find Christopher Fawner at Fawner916. And you can find Dr. Keller. Uh, performing social distancing. Performing social distancing. All right, thank you all for listening and thanks to Bahana Mani for the music. <laughs>